You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Hello and welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. I hope you've all had a good month. The clocks have changed and here in UK we are going into darkness. Dark when I get up, dark when I come out of the office. But hey, not for too long because in just over a month the days will be getting longer and nights shorter again. So it's almost on the up. I would like to thank you all for your support. I'm amazed at how loyal you are, you the listeners. Indeed, after uploading my story last month, Achille and Bob and Germain, and most importantly, after a few months of complete radio silence from me, I didn't expect that the story would be listened to very much. And I thought the silence coming from my cupboard would have made you walk away from the podcast. And so one evening, when I looked at the numbers of listen for the story, I was flabbergasted. Not only you've stayed subscribed, but it seems as if you have carried on sharing the podcast with friends or on your social media. So thank you. I obviously don't advertise. So this is all down to words of mass, down to you. So from me to you, thank you. And also I want to do a big shout out to Australia, who is now accountable for 25% of all the downloads. Blame me. Thank you, Oz. I love you well, but you probably know this already because quite a few of the stories are based there. The reason is I have wonderful friends there. I spent a few very happy years of my life on your red dirt. And so today I thought I would give you a little story that is partly based there. I love this story and I received it over a year ago already. So you know who you are and I am sorry that it took me so long to voice your tale. But here it is. The girls had always known each other. They were next door neighbors. Their parents had both arrived in Australia as young couples and they had settled down in the northern suburbs of Adelaide in South Australia in 1968. They were £10 pums. And if you've never heard of this expression, it refers to the payment of £10 in processing fees to migrate to Australia in a great push by the um, Australian and the British governments encouraging people to move to the country and to populate it. So one family had arrived from Devon in the south of England and the other from Newcastle in the north. Both husbands had secured a position at a local car manufacturing company and the family found themselves living next to each other. And as it seems, maybe the days at sea were long for both couples because soon both wives were displaying round stomachs underneath their flowery dresses. And over the fence, as their tummies grew bigger, they would chat to each other about baby's names, baby's clothes to make, baby's expectations and dreams. The girls were born only a few weeks from each other, in the heat of the summer. Eve in January and Eliza in February. The babies spent many hours of the first few months of their lives buried in the comfort of the great big prams, parked next to each other under the shade of a tree in one garden or the other, or just being pushed on the squeaky aluminium frames next to each other, basked in the voices of their mothers chatting together. And when the novelty wore off a bit, 
Both babies found themselves lying in the same pram, one at either end, little fat feet touching, like an invisible bond that was to last for decades. And soon the babies grew into toddlers. As much as Eve was fair and delicate, Eliza was dark and powerful. And that difference in their physical appearances only accentuated with time, choke and cheese. The girls didn't go to the same school. One was Catholic and the other Protestant. And so their day was spent separated from one another. But as soon as the school bus would drop them home, there was no space between them. Walking the streets together and chatting away about their present and their future, beach trips on the tram and fish and chips on the seafront in Glenegg, many hours were also spent in Eve's bedroom, lying on her bed, one at either end, feet against feet, like when they were babies, speaking and doing crafts, listening to music or just doing nothing. But it was under the camellia bush in Eve's garden that they spent their best moments of togetherness. From an early age, the girls had made a little nest in there, in the dry leaves and dirt, the cubby, as they used to call it. And as the years passed, as their bodies became bigger and their refuge smaller, they spent long hours in there. And that is where they had started writing their diary, Eliza had received one for her 12th birthday. It was a beautiful diary, bigger than most. Its red glossy cover was slightly padded and the paper was thick and it had the most beautiful padlock on it with two little keys. And to Eliza, it had been so natural to give a key to Eve. It was going to be Bo's day diary. They were going to write together. Lying flat on their tummies, under the camellia bush, the girls would write. And they would take turns in doing so, depending on their mood or which one of them could be bothered to do it. It wasn't greatly introspective, mostly describing the things that were happening in their days, or little stories they would make up. Eve was actually very good at that. And Eliza would illustrate them with her drawings and sketches. And she was very good at that. There was a section they had created in the middle of the diary. It was simply called When We Grow Up. And there they would write about their imaginary future in great details. What they would be doing, their future jobs, their future homes, their future husbands. Well, actually, it was mostly Eve's dreams, as Eliza didn't really know what she wanted her own future to look like maybe travel the world and sail the seven seas. Yes, she wanted to discover the world, learn languages and draw what she saw, but it was vague. Eve, on the contrary, had very specific ideas and images. She would live in a big house with roses and wisteria climbing on the veranda. She would become a well-known writer of children's books that Eliza would illustrate. Her husband would be tall and handsome, closely shaved, hair nicely combed smelling of aftershave. And her children would be a boy and a girl with blonde hair and blue jerseys to match the color of their eyes. Eliza was mesmerized by the details and vivid images, and a little envious too, maybe. But between the sentences on the pages, 
she could read her friend's need for order and stability. And as the years passed, it became more accentuated. Maybe it had something to do with the amount of beer bottles her father and mother had started bringing back every day from the liquor store. The piles of dirty laundry, the mess in the house spreading onto the yard, and the shouting. The shouting Eliza could hear sometimes late at night when the windows were open. Yet none of that ever found a place in the diary. But the next day, the girls would be back under the camellia bush, and Eve would frantically scribble down more details about the dark blue cabinets of a future kitchen, the French doors that would let the light flood onto the honey-colour floorboards. And next to her, Eliza would comment and ask about this detail and that one. Never a cubby under a bush had contained as many dreams and aspirations. Although saying that, maybe that's not true, maybe all cubbies do. But all was to change abruptly for the girls in the summer of 1983. Eliza's parents had been discussing a possible return to England on and off for a while now. But when Eliza's father lost his job at the car manufacturing factory, the decision was made. The family would relocate to the north of England. The goodbyes were difficult. Eliza spent the last few weeks in Adelaide with a dull feeling of guilt, torn between the excitement of a new life on a brand new continent and the sadness of the forthcoming separation, leaving her friend behind. Sometime before the big departure, Eve had appeared with the diary. It had been a while since they had both written in it. They had sat on Eliza's bed, feet to feet, bonded in that way they knew both so well. And Eve had opened the diary. With care, she had numbered each page and then carefully torn every other page so that we can both remember who we are, she had said as she handed half the diary back to Eliza. And there she sat, upright, with the torn pages carefully gathered into a neat pile on her laps, her delicate hands posed flat on it, looking at Eliza in that direct blue gaze that was so specific to her. And Eliza noticed something new around the neck, a chain, and at the end of it, dangling, was a little key. Years passed fast, and the relocation to England hadn't been easy for Eliza. The culture, the weather, the school system, everything had been alien to her. She had found it difficult to adapt and to make real friends at her new school. And so she concentrated on the one thing she could do well, schoolwork. She soon excelled, especially in anything that had to do with numbers. She was also gifted in art and was often sketching, drawing. But, maybe sadly, when the time came to choose a direction for further studies, she listened to the advices of others and she picked accountancy. And soon she stopped drawing altogether. Eve sent her letters in the first year or so, to which she always replied, but soon it wasn't so easy to share. Their lives seemed so different from each other. 
She doesn't quite know who stopped writing, but by the time Eliza started university, the letters had stopped altogether. Eliza moved to London and started working for a big firm in the city. She never travelled, learned the languages or sailed on the seven seas. Instead, she did very well and her career moved on fast. Promotions, attractive salary and new positions. She jumped on the property ladder early and again did very well, buying and selling at the right time and soon investing into rental properties. She met Chris at work. They flirted in the corridors for a while and around the photocopier. And when, at the Christmas party, she snuggled for the very first time in his neck, she thought of Eve. Maybe it was because of the smell of the aftershave he was wearing. They were married four years later, and soon children came. A boy and then a girl. Eliza stopped work and the family moved out of London into a house in the Surrey countryside. It was Eliza who had chosen the house. She had visited it on her own on a Saturday afternoon. Chris was away on yet another corporate trip. He had seen photographs and he said that he had trusted her judgment. Eliza had loved it instantly. It felt known to her, as if she had been there before. The wisteria climbing on the east side of the house was in full bloom and the roses against the wall exhumed a delicate scent. But it was the kitchen that had made it for her. There, standing amongst the duck blue cabinets, in front of the French doors that let the sunlight flood onto the honey-colored floorboards, she took her decision. This is where they would live. And from nowhere and fleetingly, an image came into her mind. Two delicate hands posed flat on a neatly gathered pile of pages. But she pushed it aside. Life should have been happy and soft. Eliza should have felt fulfilled. Her children were easygoing and growing up happily. Her marriage to Chris was smooth, functional, running like a well-oiled machine. Lovely holidays abroad, with friends always. Dinner parties, drink parties and more friends. But she felt increasingly lonely in her life. Her children were away at boarding school. She hadn't wanted that. It hadn't been part of her upbringing. But Chris had insisted and she had weakly surrendered, even facilitated it. Chris was often away, working long hours in London and when he was home he was a little somber, often playing video games on his computer. Only with others, with friends, he would come to life and be the life and soul of every parties. But it wasn't just in a marriage she felt lonely in her friendships too. She often found herself exhausted after an evening out or even after a coffee. What should have been filling up her batteries was depleting them. To be in connection with others was increasingly difficult, empty. And so, slowly, she withdrew back into herself. But she couldn't remember what she liked even the long walks in the glorious countrysides with the dogs left her flat, empty. There was emptiness inside her, and it was taking all the room. 
and one December morning, she woke up. She opened her eyes, let them wander onto the blank ceiling, listless. There was nothing left of her but her despondency. She was despondency. Her GP had agreed to prescribe her antidepressants with the one condition. She had to do a therapy alongside it. He recommended someone and in the second week of January, she started. The room was cushioned but sober. A few shelves with books, a painting of a window opened onto the ocean on the side wall, two chairs separated by a low table with two glasses, a jug of water, and a box of tissues. In the corner of the room, a stand with a green plant and a little diffuser puffing away its pleasant aromatic smell. Eliza sat down in one of the chairs, the therapist in the other, looking at her with kind eyes behind blue-rimmed glasses. Where do you start where you have nothing to say? When you feel severed from yourself? When you have forgotten who you are? And that is exactly where she started. And as if it wasn't herself speaking, she heard her own voice say one sentence, I have forgotten who I am. And the therapist said a kind few words, spoke of an exercise she would like her to do in between consultations. Writing. She wanted her to write a diary. Her thoughts. Write the dates every day at the top of the page. Leave the page blank if needed to. She wanted her to write. The therapist got up and went to the shelves, where next to the books was a pile of colorful blank notebooks. What color will you choose, she had asked. Red, she had simply said. An hour later, sitting in her car parked in the empty car park, she is completely still. She cannot take her eyes away from the red notebook on her laps. The cover is different. It isn't padded nor glossy, and it has no padlock with two little keys, but the color. Eve. She remembers Eve carefully tearing every other pages and her words so we can both remember who we are. When Eliza arrives home, she takes her shoes and socks off. She climbs the stairs two by two. She hasn't done that for months. There is a strange energy running through her. She can feel it. It's almost palpable. She gets to the attic and opens a large cardboard box. She never comes up here. Gosh, it's dingy in here. She must ask Chris to put some more lights. And her hands feel it before she can see it. She feels the padlock and the little key attached. She sits on a knee like she used to do when she was a child. She caresses the glossy red cover, opens it and starts turning the pages, reading words, sentences, dreams, aspirations. She sees her sketches, her drawings. She throws her head back and breathes. Maybe she's smiling. Eve, she must get in touch with Eve. It is a certainty. She must speak to Eve. And then she looks around her. Her eyes are used to the darkness now and she looks at the space around her as if she had never seen it. 
It's actually a lovely space here under the roof. Maybe a couple of skylights would be better and a window opened into the north-facing wall. It would make a lovely studio. It's peaceful. It filters the sounds from the house. She can just barely hear the phone ringing downstairs right now. That's okay. Chris will pick up. And she breathes again. A little later, she walks into the kitchen. Chris has cooked supper. He does this more often now and he's a lot more present since that bad morning in December. He has opened a bottle of wine from the Barossa, South Australia, he tells her. And as he fills up a glass, he says that speaking about Australia, he had almost forgotten, but someone with an Aussie accent had just called when she was up in the attic. And Eliza looks up at his face, reading the words on his lips almost as if she knows what he is about to say. Eve, she said she was called Eve. And as Eliza stands there, utterly still, with the glass of wine in her hand, she feels the pressure of her feet on the honey-colored floorboards, rooting her, almost pulling her down, as if an invisible thread traveled through the floor, through the ground, through the center of the earth and all the way through the other side to somewhere in Australia where a middle-aged woman is standing barefoot on a veranda, the warm morning breeze on her face, a small chain around her neck and at the end of it dangling a little key. Et voilà. I hope you have enjoyed Eliza's story. Since that moment, the friends have been reunited twice. They still both have half of the diary, although each halves were exchanged through the post. I don't want to speak too much about Eve and what had happened in her life, because I'm still hoping that one day she might decide to share her story with us. Because there is a beautiful story there too, but one that belongs to her. What I can say is that Eliza is now painting in the attic. Chris organized the skylights and had the window open on the north-facing wall. This story made me think a lot about those strange moments of serendipity. We all know them. When we think of someone and then that person rings, or when we think of a tune of music and it plays on the radio a moment later, when we dream of a long-lost friend and an email from him or her is already waiting in our inbox. Are we like trees, standing alone, or branches spread out to the rain and the sunlight, yet deep in the good earth, invisible to the eye, or roots are all connected? I don't know. Tell me. Anyway, I will leave you now. But before I go, I will ask you for a favor. Please rate Dear Inkabot on your podcast app. On an iPhone, it literally takes five seconds to press the stars. And if you have three minutes to spare, you can write a review. It's like a bubble of pleasure for me to read them, and it connects me to you. And if you want to join the Erin Covered community, just join our private Facebook group. And you know I'm on Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for the Erin Covered. Thank you for listening today. I wish you all a very good month. And until we meet again in the Erin Covered, goodbye.